Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and a happy new year from Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. On today's show, New Year's Dissolutions. We're counting down the challenges ahead for maths geek Rishi Sunak in 2023. Plus, we remember David Cameron's big idea, the big society, and ask whether it helped Britain to become what it is today. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, a special Oh God, What Now? book club. Naomi Smith is the chief exec of Best for Britain and future author of Vegan Tapas Bars of Andalucia. (laughs) She's back from a Spanish Christmas break. Hello, Naomi. Hi. Hola. Feliz año. Politico has been digging into the foreign trips that some MPs make under the auspices of all-party parliamentary groups. What have some of them been doing when they escape the notoriously austere commons, Naomi? Well, Politico reported towards the end of last year that some, not all members of these APPGs, all-party parliamentary groups, most from a single party, and I'll leave you to guess which one that was, have been using trips abroad for the country-focused APPGs uh, to frequent sex workers and drink excessively, um, with witnesses describing a kind of stag-do kind of culture on the trips, which are being undertaken under the guise of parliamentary business. And it is really important to flag that while a lot of APPGs seem to be fronts for businesses and foreign governments to court British lawmakers, there are many that do do really good work. They are, you know, informal cross-party groups. They're made up of MPs and peers, ostensibly formed to focus or specialise on a single issue. But some of them barely ever meet. So as of November, I think there were something close to 750 APPGs in Parliament. And they can focus on anything from very important issues like certain disabilities, communities, innovative tech to the more silly. Um, So there is an APPG for cats, which I'm sure Ros will say is not silly at all. Um, And there's another one for polo. But it was unclear to me if that meant water polo, horse riding polo, or maybe even confectionery, the mints. Um, But there's also an APPG for almost every country in the world. And it's these ones that that drew the focus of uh, these kind of junket trips where some Uh, members had been engaging in some rather naughty business at taxpayers' expense. Seth Tevos is a historian and author of Behind Closed Doors, the story of Britain's private members' clubs. Hello, Seth. Hello. You suggested over the weekend that we should privatise the honour system. How would that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing to remember is that there's never been a golden age where lovely, delightful honours were given to guilt-free people purely out of philanthropy and so on. The honour system was literally created centuries ago to uh, ennoble cronies, to ennoble rich friends of the king, and to raise money. And the only difference between the honour system of a thousand years ago and now is that it used to be the king who sold them, and it's now the political parties that sell them to raise cash. Now, we've tried for the last 98 years prohibition. It's theoretically illegal to sell honours, although actually the practice is widely done, and I've done quite a bit of work around this. But um, actually, anyone who's seen those sort of Highland title scams being advertised for plots of land in Scotland and that you can be a baron or a countess for a day or whatever, um, will know that people are going to try this on anyway. So rather than pretending it doesn't happen, why don't we just legalise it, tax it, literally sell the government licence to make people um, appear or whatever, 
whatever they want to be, um, have a catalogue, have prices, and it would work just like Elon Musk's blue tick. Everyone would know you're a Pratt because you're paying $8 a month to be able to have a blue tick next to your name. But, you know, in your in your vision, would these people still be helping to make laws? No, no, no. Well, helpfully, oh, we, we seem to have an incoming government that's uh, pledged also apparently to uh, to abolish the Lords. I mean, the, the peerages are the only one of these things that actually has any power. The rest of it's completely inconsequential. Um, and if you want to call yourself a grand high executioner or whatever, fine. I'll take your money. Well, let's not count our chickens on this on this front yet. But uh, mm. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. You're working on a new series of Doomsday Watch, aren't you? Uh, how's the world ending next? Well, uh, it's, we're still in the earliest stages, um, but what we're hoping to try to do is a sort of first draft history of the Ukraine war, uh, which is nearly a year old already. And uh, it feels like it's time to try to look back and make sense of those first weeks. So on New Year's Eve, Russia attacked Kyiv infrastructure with drone strikes. And in retaliation, Ukraine hit a fuel depot, which the Kremlin says killed 63 soldiers. Zelensky says Russia's strategy this year will be to use drones to exhaust Ukraine. What's Ukrainian morale like at the moment? Well, I, I was speaking to some Ukrainians in the run up to Christmas, as it happens, uh, when they'd been through several days without power, without internet. And of course, it does get properly cold there. And I'm not going to say morale was sky high because, you know, why would it be in that situation? But there was certainly resilience and certainly determination. So I think Putin's problem is that he thinks he can sort of starve the Ukrainians into submission, but they've kind of got the wind in their sails and they feel that they have the potential to defeat Russia, which of course no one thought they would do. I don't think it's it's a strategy that can obviously work. The strategy that might work is if, as he, as I'm talking about Putin now, he claims he wants to do, or certainly the indications are, is to mobilise huge numbers of Russians, not just a few thousand, but a few million. I don't think he's got the logistics to, to do that. But that's the sort of the threat that would change the whole uh, aspect of this war. <laughs> As we start this section, we'd like to extend our love and best wishes to Minnie Rahman, whose father died on Christmas Eve. On Twitter, she wrote that he waited for an ambulance for three hours before it was too late. He was only 58. Rishi Sunak starts 2023 with yet another round of strikes and the threat of walkouts by doctors and teachers too. Parts of the NHS have effectively collapsed. Food inflation has hit 13.3%. Labour leads by 20 points in the polls. But on the plus side for Sunak, people still prefer him to Starmer as PM. And he has a plan. He's going to make maths compulsory for 16 to 18-year-olds. Must be tougher than he thought to do his wife's tax return. (laughs) A numer at Britain will be able to find the best mortgage rates, he promised us. But surely the best way to do that was freedom of movement. First test question, if 20,000 elderly people are waiting 24 hours outside 200 hospitals for a bed, what's the probability some of them will die? Show your working, Sunak. Arthur, maths aside, what did Sunak have to say today? Well, um, he was obviously uh, trying to bring back some of the greatest hits of the Blair era. And those of us who are old enough will remember the pledge card. And it was a thing that that New Labour had in a sort of pre-internet age where people would have a little thing in their wallets. So Sunak had five pledges to halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, to cut hospital waiting lists and to stop migrant crossings. Those are all things that Tory voters would probably love to see happen. And what you'll notice about them is that they're pleasingly unspecific. I mean, halving inflation, yeah, we can measure that. But most of the other things, uh, it'd be quite hard to measure exactly how much he's done it and to what extent there's a real impact. And if you compare that with the actual pledge card of, of the new Labour era, there was much more meat on those bones. You know, he, there were pledges to cut class sizes to a specific amount, pledges on the specific uh, degree to which NHS waiting lists would be reduced. So I think it's it's what you might call a pale imitation of an, of an earlier classic. Naomi, on New Year's Day, there were waits of up to four days for hospital bed in some parts of the UK. NHS chiefs are warning the crisis could last until April. But the government seems to be in denial, doesn't it? Yeah. And look, while undoubtedly 
the legacy of COVID is having an impact and, you know, worse flu this year probably linked to that. There, there can just be no doubt that the reason the NHS is struggling so badly is because of Tory mismanagement. You had austerity, you had Brexit that not only hit public finances, but brought acute labour shortages in healthcare. And there's no plan for social care, and that's causing backlogs in hospital. And, and social care was a glaring omission from uh, what we heard uh, of uh, in Sunak's speech earlier. And at Best of Britain, we've been running um, a, a campaign called Can't Wait for the last sort of six months or so. And that highlights this specific issue as an acute example of how we can't afford to have the Tories in charge anymore. One of the the videos in our Can't Wait campaign is a real life story um, of a woman who's on the phone to an ambulance handler while her husband has collapsed beside her. And she's calling them back and calling them back and calling them back because the ambulance just isn't coming and and then it's too late. And, um, you know, and and sadly that was was true for for Minnie's father. Um, And we launched the campaign um, at Unison Conference in the summer, but we that was a a soft launch. We took it to the Labour Party Conference in September and had it on a huge screen at our exhibition space. And the morning that, we were going up to Labour Conference to take that video there. It was being used to try and get people to back PR because, you know, the consequence of our failed electoral system is having conservative mismanagement in number 10 for more of the time than would otherwise be. I was woken early and I could hear noise outside and it was one of my neighbours who had collapsed and other neighbours had sort of found her and, and were saying she can't breathe, she can't breathe. And they called the ambulance and the ambulance said, absolutely no chance. Now, this was in central London, zone one, at 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And we were being told, absolutely no chance for an ambulance. And I I called them myself. I called 999 and said, she's going to die if you don't come. And they said, there is absolutely no way we can get an ambulance to you within the next hour. And so I had to, with the help of neighbours, put her in the back of my car um, and drive like the clappers over to St Thomas's Hospital and halfway over Lambeth Bridge she she stopped breathing and the people that were in the back of my car with her were sort of you know beating her chest trying to get breath back into her which we managed to do but if I'd not been there with a car I don't know what would have happened to her and so at a time when people are dying in hospital corridors and at home because ambulances don't come to them Sunak's speech just beggars belief. I mean, you know, even if he delivers on all of the five things he set out, that will still be worse than when the Tories took over, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just, you know, be back to not even as good a position as we were in. And you just don't get asked to be judged on your record after 12 years of abject failure, three of which you were Chancellor for. Do you think the kind of emergency measures that we saw during COVID, like building Nightingale hospitals, which in the event, of course, didn't really get used, that kind of thing, that sort of emergency footing would make a difference? Or does the crisis just feel too deep-rooted for that? Well, I think, while it was probably right, the government set up the Nightingales as a precaution. We were pretty lucky that they were never needed. And some of them, though, were meant to have 4,000 beds. And remember, we entered the pandemic with 100,000 vacancies across the NHS. So there was just simply never going to be the, the level of staffing needed to run them safely. So thank God we didn't have to end up using them because there would have been patients, but but not enough people to look after them. Um, and of course, the, the, famously, they cost 350 million to provide temporary capacity during a pandemic. So um, I don't think uh, we're looking at a, a situation where emergency measures can do much. The crisis, as, you know, as I said earlier, is the result of nearly 13 years of Tory mismanagement and there are no quick fixes. And it's another reason why Labour needs to make sure they aren't a one-term government. You know, they, they, it's going to take a really long time to begin to fix the damage that they've done. Well, speaking of that, Arthur, do you think the Conservatives know that they can't turn around the problem before the next general election? And so that gives them an incentive almost not to do anything? I think there is an element of that. Sunak's speech wasn't, was neither a strategy nor a, a clear kind of a disaster recovery programme. It was, it was just a, a set of pledges with a maths lesson thrown in. And I think they must, if, if you put yourself in his shoes, which, which are very small and expensive, I imagine, 
they must be wondering what options are available to them without sort of transgressing core Tory policies like not putting taxes up and not investing in public services. So whether or not they know they can't win or they're just gradually coming to terms with that fact, it it will become clearer over the coming year, I guess. There is a school of thought that says this is a deliberate attempt to run down the NHS and then point to its failures as a reason to get rid of it and say that we need a privatised healthcare system, one that's perhaps more like America's. Is that plausible or is it is it too cynical? Well, I think it's plausible in the sense that you are already seeing, and in fact, it was mentioned today, uh, I think in the Daily Mail, this idea that you say, well, the NHS can't be fixed. It, it's something that cannot be reformed. So you sort of write it off. And so whether or not that was the plan from the outset by neglect, you've got to the stage where you say it's too late now, we can't fix it. And what you do then is you encourage those that can afford it to to have private health care and, and various other options. Of course, that doesn't help the person who collapses outside Naomi's flat, of course. You know, there isn't a private emergency health care option. But perhaps the idea is that if enough wealthy people, you know, get insurance for elective procedures, then that reduces pressure on the overall service. The contrast between Labour's poll lead and the public's coolness on Starmer, which I talked about earlier, is quite striking. What do you think he needs to do to change that? He's giving a speech this week, which we hope we'll see more of what his vision is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always amazed that politicians bother to give speeches because, frankly, who gives a shit about what they say, honestly? <laughs> only only people who listen to podcasts like this are remotely interested in, in, in Sunak's speech, Starmer's speech, Ed Davies' speech, all these speeches. What he has to do, presumably, is not seem such a stiff and uh, distant figure. And whether or not he has the capability to do that, it just, you know, in his own character, is, is a question that remains unanswered. He probably has to spend more time on breakfast TV or on, you know, sort of mass mass media rather than get giving big highfalutin policy speeches. Having said all of that, it seems perfectly possible that you could have a successful prime minister who is not wildly popular as a, as an individual. And there are case studies of that. You know, you've got John Major, you've got Clement Attlee. It doesn't strike me that if you have this big commanding poll lead and you look competent, that might be enough. Seth, the rail strikes mean that the podmaster's office is a bit quiet this week, uh, though I took a couple of trains on Monday and I was shocked when we were overtaken by an Avanti West Coast locomotive. That just felt <laughs> un- unreal. There are rumours, though, that the RMT is prepared to do a deal. How long do you think the government can let these perma-strikes run on? I don't think the length of the strike is actually so much the issue. I mean, some of these things can go on. We've already had nearly a year of on and off strikes across different sectors. Um, The key thing is is a question of public sympathy. And at a time when most people are suffering in some way or another, there's a great deal of sympathy, actually, for people saying, fair enough, actually. Um, These are not unreasonable demands in many cases. Uh, Even if the demands are met, people will still be worse off than they were three or four years ago in many cases. What I think we're, we're tormented by when we think about strikes is the whole narrative of the uh, case of the winter of discontent of 1978-79 and the last time that a government was effectively brought down as a result of of mass strikes. That's an interesting thing. If if you speak to people who sort of lived through the 70s, because we have this image of rubbish mounting in the streets and rats everywhere and unmitigated disaster – But actually, there were a heck of a lot of uh, strikes all throughout the 70s and indeed the 60s and 50s. And there's a lot of evidence that the strikes then weren't particularly worse than many that had gone before or indeed after. What it was more a case of was that there was much greater awareness of them. Um, In fact, there's some interesting stuff about how uh, the Callaghan government's tax rates particularly badly hit journalists. And journalists felt rather aggrieved and thought, right, we're going to cover this and uh, we'll do this for the government. Um, So really, there's a wider question about public sympathy and whether people are prepared to put up with this and how long they put up with it for is, I think, almost secondary to that. Because public uh, sympathy for striking nurses doesn't really seem to have eroded at all. No, no. Which I think the government was hoping it would mm. after the strike, but it hasn't. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, it, <laughs> Spitting Image used to do a standard thing where uh, Neil Kinnock would uh, always repeat the message that would go down well with voters, and it just consisted of his saying, nurses, nurses, popular people, <laughs> nurses. But yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and if you look at the breakdown in terms of people's sympathy with strikers, it 
by occupation. You know, anyone in healthcare, absolutely, particularly after the pandemic and after I think the debt we owe all owe everyone there, um, is, is sky high. But I, I think there's just the general feeling of malaise that the country is not right, and as a result. You don't need to be particularly extreme to say, well, a strike might actually be necessary. Um, this is not a prosperous country of several decades ago where it would have seemed a, a rather radical proposition. Yeah, you've got a point there. I remember seeing uh, the recent polls that barristers, people did not have any sympathy at all for the striking barristers who who did settle recently, although, frankly, they had a very, very good case for striking, in my view. So I suppose it's a case of what you, what you think you know about the professions. Naomi, you're a qualified accountant, and you know your way around a spreadsheet. Does Sunak, <laughs> does Sunak have a point about Britain's math skills? I mean, the way he presented it, it came off to me, like, I became a millionaire using maths, so everyone else should too. Um, and it, it's, I'm so it's rich, I can count all my money. Yeah, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, look, A, during an acute NHS crisis and cost of living crisis, this was not the right time to raise it. And B, even if it was a good time to raise it, there was a good point to be made and he didn't make it. So I think there is a good point to be made around not narrowing down subjects so early. I remember age 13 having to choose my GCSEs and having to basically make the decision about whether or not I was going to do a degree like medicine age 13 because I was going to have to either opt to do all three sciences at GCSE so that I could then do them at A-level or do double award science so that I could keep a language or do geography as well as history. And so we, we do narrow down very, very early uh, in the British education system by comparison to countries that have you know international baccalaureate kind of style approaches. So there is, of course, a need and you know an, a requirement, and it's increasingly important for people to have arithmetic ability, but of course not everyone needs to understand the complex stuff you learn at A-level maths, which was implied in a compulsory until 18 headlines. But I, I you know I vividly remember teachers saying to me, you, your name, you're going to need this in when you, you know, when you grow up in your job, you're going to need to be able to do this. I can categorically confirm in 20 odd years of my professional life, I have never needed to calculate the length of the hypotenuse of a triangle. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, most of it you don't need, but um, I can certainly tell you there are a few politicians that need to know a little bit more about statistics. So, no, I mean, you're, you're going to undermine parents like me who are constantly lying to my children saying you must do your maths because, you know, it proves so useful later in life. <laughs> well, my son doesn't even get his pudding till he does his maths questions each night. <laughs> well, you so. must do your maths so that you can eat. Exactly. Five <laughs> percent yep. of the population have something called um, dyscalculia, I think it's pronounced, which is, a, you know, a kind of dyslexia around numbers rather than words, which is not an insignificant number of people. Hmm. I mean, in a world where John Major could be Chancellor, that, that needs an American voice. In a world. You've got a point, haven't you? Because he, he didn't go to university. He hasn't got, he didn't get A-levels, am I right? No, no, that's right. Well, he was being teased about this on his first day in the job. And it was, uh, so what's 17 times 12, John? I think, I think he'd worked as a banker, though. So presumably he was quite okay. He'd worked in a bank, which is a slightly different proposition to what most Tories mean when they say banker. Right, yeah. <laughs> Naomi, Suanak promised to get rid of EU-aligned laws in the first 100 days of his premiership, but this is proving harder than he seems to have anticipated. Tell us what's going on there. Well, obviously it was a Brexit promise, Roz, so inevitably it isn't going to happen. Um, the latest report suggests that Sunak is going to be forced to delay the retained EU law bill because it's just not going to be time to mitigate the total shitstorm that would be unleashed by scrapping 4,000-plus regulations, protections and standards that have underpinned how we operate for, for decades. Um, and we've also um, seen recent public comments from senior Conservative peers, including Danny Finkelstein, on how the bill is not only not fit for purpose, but is a complete affront to democracy. Um, and Brexit, as it bypasses Parliament and it hands unprecedented powers directly to ministers, as we've seen in so many bloody bills going through parliament over the last few years so it's 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 not at all clear that sunak could get this past the lords 
So um, fingers crossed it is shelved until after the next election when hopefully he'll be out on his ear. Arthur, it gets harder and harder to pretend that Brexit has brought any benefits, but the Labour line continues to be that we just have to make the best of it. Does Starmer's position on this make sense to you? Well, no, it doesn't. But then I I have to obviously sort of put aside my own perspective that I hardly know anyone, you know, anywhere who who is who started out as a Brexit voter and certainly is is no longer a Brexit supporter. I guess the the thought is that it's a gift to the right wing media, even those parts of the media themselves that are now reporting that Brexit has failed. But but it's just it makes it too easy to paint him as this sort of lefty Islington lawyer, the kind of Boris Johnson caricature. But having said all of that, it still seems a bit weird because you could stand up and say this isn't about what you thought eight years ago. It's about what you think now. I'm you know two years from now. Do you want to be structurally worse off as a country and as a as a party that looks to protect uh, the poorer in society? Why would we do that? But you know, I'm 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 clearly not advising Keir Starmer. What's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This one's from Mark Hymers. He says, many tech companies now have remote first policies. With second chamber reform possibly coming, and given the southeast domination of the Lords, should a new chamber be formulated around allowing members to be remote, living and working in their communities, rather than London? Seth, you're an expert on the House of Lords, so I'm going to go to you first. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, during COVID, we had a lot of experience of uh, remote sessions of both chambers of parliament, and the world didn't collapse, actually. We all are all zoomed out, I think, and we're all used to these meetings that feel still is and awkward when you're having conversations. But parliamentary proceedings aren't like that. People make 15-minute, three-hour speeches in some cases, and um, it really doesn't matter fundamentally if it's done on screen or not. So, yeah, we, we have the technology for this. I suppose it would, you know, at least avoid the accusation that the Lords is a care home for a very luxurious care home for a few hundred elderly people. No, no, I mean, I can foresee a time when our House of Lords will have people zooming in live from Miami. <laughs> it's weird. I was, I was actually imagining this uh, a scenario like this in the in the book I've just written, where there, there's a big fire and the House of uh, the, the Palace of Westminster gets completely destroyed, and the House of Lords just basically disappears and goes online, and no one really notices what it does anymore. So <laughs> there you go, some prophecy for you there. Uh, I personally think it should relocate to Crewe because you know it's it's pretty much north, great rail connections. It would give them a completely new perspective on the country. Naomi, how about you? Uh, what what future do you see for a remote Lords? Well, we did a huge amount during the pandemic, as Seth said, with, with peers um, and MPs, and uh, it worked well. I think given the um, average age profile of the average peer, it's great for them to be able to participate remotely because getting to the chamber for some of them is really difficult. Um, many more of them have mobility issues than uh, members of the Commons. Um, and so being able to vote remotely and participate in committees and things like that, I think, um, was a, you know, a great innovation of the pandemic and necessity is the mother of all invention, which is why it happened. And I think more of that should continue. And I agree with you as well, Roz, you know, why just why why make it a binary thing i think relocate it out of london crew fantastic great rail links we know you love a good train journey not having it as a a mandatory turn up you know i think yeah you should you should probably try and meet your fellow peers on occasion but it'd be superb to have it 
as virtual as possible. I think it should move around. And I've always thought that it's good that the European Parliament moves between Brussels and Strasbourg. I know it's it's not popular to say that and we're supposed to scorn the wastefulness and so on. But, um, of course, historic parliaments would move around the country uh, and it doesn't seem to me a bad idea. And, you know, it might make the House of Lords a bit more conscious of, of you know, the differences in, in different parts of the of Britain. I mean, the main reason why the Lords needs to meet in, in uh, central London is that Harrods is in central London. So if there are branch offices around the UK, they'd be totally happy with that. <laughs> and and should, presumably branch offices of those uh, clubs that you're an expert on as well, so that people yeah. have somewhere to go at lunchtime. So there you have it, Mark. We wanted to be remote, but it would be also cool if it moved around. <laughs> Remember, you can put your question to the panel when you back us on Patreon. Think of the 2010s and most of us think of austerity and Brexit, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. When David Cameron came to power in 2010, he had a different vision for what Britain should be like. Big society is about a huge culture change, where people in their everyday lives, in their homes, in their neighbourhoods, in their workplaces, don't always turn to officials, local authorities or central government for answers to the problems they face, but instead feel both free and powerful enough to help themselves and their own communities. It's about people setting up great new schools, businesses helping people get trained for work, charities working in our prisons to rehabilitate offenders. It's about liberation, the biggest, most dramatic redistribution of power from elites in Whitehall to the man and the woman on the street. And we shouldn't be naive enough to think that if the government simply rolls back and does less, then miraculously society will spring up and do more. The big society would devolve power from Westminster and encourage people to build up their own communities. Initial feedback from the backbenches wasn't wholly positive. We need to turn Oliver Letwin's Hegelian (laughs) dialectic into voter-friendly stuff, one told The Guardian. Another said it was bollocks and boiled vegetables cooked for three minutes too long. By 2013, the whole idea had been dropped. But with so many Britons relying on food banks and charities for their basic needs, did the big society anticipate what Britain would become with a much thinner welfare state? Seth, David Cameron wanted volunteer and mutual groups to take over some of the state's work. And lots of those were actually set up during the pandemic, largely on WhatsApp, people volunteered at vaccine clinics. Was he right to think that Britons could be more altruistic if they were given the chance? Well, I think Britons have never stopped being altruistic if given half a chance and and, uh, the response during the pandemic helped. But this isn't a substitute for something more organised. I mean, I can think of uh, friends of mine who were uh, active in a community COVID group uh, very early on during the pandemic. They did fantastic work getting medical supplies to people and they all fell really ill with COVID within a week of that. Um, and so it, I think you know, a lot of these things actually, yes, they can supplement, but they shouldn't be a substitute for the state. Harking back to this Victorian mindset, you know, harking back to a, a better yesterday where, um, yes, the state was tiny and taxes were lower and people died. That's not the kind of world that I'd necessarily like to live in. Arthur, the Ukrainian refugee scheme is an interesting thing to think about here because it was set up very much along these lines. You've got no right to come to Britain as a Ukrainian refugee. You have to be sponsored and your accommodation has to be guaranteed. To me, that felt like a very telling difference between us and the EU. What uh, What do you think of the scheme? Well, I agree with your basic point that it was outsourcing what should be a national responsibility in a time of crisis when another European country has been invaded you know, by a fascist regime. It was outsourcing that responsibility to wealthy individuals who had appropriate sized houses to be able to house Ukrainians. And inevitably, because lots of people stepped up, those of us who made that point at the time were told that it was sort of typical whinging uh, North London podcasters. But what has happened is what you would expect to happen, which is that for a lot of people, having someone in your house who you don't know, who may be traumatised or, you know, maybe in their own way slightly annoying, gets a bit difficult. And and I I know people directly who've um, done this scheme and found it quite difficult. And of course, we've all read reports of people uh, involved with this scheme where, where things have gone badly wrong. And we're quite soon reaching the moment 
where a lot of these Ukrainians may be told by their hosts, well, I'm sorry, this was never for life. And you're going to have to find alternative arrangements now. And so our decision as a country not to take seriously the greatest refugee crisis that Europe has faced since um, since World War Two, uh, it w- will will come back to bite us. But it comes back to this point about the big society. I remember the the initial speech that Cameron gave, and I remember thinking on that day in 2010, well, this is a cynical way to shrink the state so it doesn't do public services properly. And with the Ukrainian um, scheme, you only get sort of government funded support for that, you know, I think is it the first six months that you've housed a refugee? And then after that, you know, you've got to absorb that cost yeah. yourself. Um, we, we famously have a housing crisis in this country. You know, people are already living in overcrowded accommodation. Our ability, even if we've got the will to help, our ability to do so is constrained. I think during the pandemic, people volunteering was amazing, but a lot of people were on furlough. So all of a sudden they had the time, but we, we are we are time poor yeah. as well as financially poor now. And being able to contribute to voluntary sector organizations is, you know, really for the, the, the wealthy privileged few these days, it's, it's incredibly difficult to be as actively involved as I'm sure most people would love to be given, you know, the state of finances. And speaking of that, Britain's a much more unequal society than it used to be. People Mm. may be stepping up, but do they actually, do the people who have more time, who are probably better off, see the communities that perhaps need their help more? Arthur, do you have that sense? Well, I'm sure that a lot is about geography, you know, that Outside big cities such as London, of course, the sort of rich and poor are quite diversely spread around. And people, lots of people, of course, engage in all kinds of community-minded activities, but they're not sitting there sort of looking at a data set of Britain and saying, well, where's the greatest need? They're probably thinking about how can I volunteer in my local food bank or how can I be involved with, you know, environmental issues in my area and so on. So, I mean, again, that's one of the flaws of the big society. You know, the reason that that, uh, nation states exist is because actually private charity doesn't fix these problems. Mm. Naomi, many charities are struggling now with the level of demand and high energy bills. Do we pay enough attention to that? Or has the plight, the terrible plight of many public services got more coverage? Yeah, no, you're right, we don't. I mean, 4 million fewer Brits gave to charities in November 2022 than previous years. And that's November is the month when charities tend to get the most uh, donations and it, it's the kind of Christmas festive period of people giving. Um, and just like many businesses in a recession, charities are facing rising costs and falling income. So we don't pay enough. thing. But looking back to 2010... Obviously, it's 13 years ago. It's hard to remember. But did we miss that this was the plan to run down the welfare state and push the burden onto charities? I don't know if it was as calculated as that. Um, but, you know, there are just people in the Conservative Party who genuinely believed that the vast majority of people who needed public services or support were, you know, lazy wastrels. And if they were denied that safety net, they'd get off the couch and start working. And of course, that's not reality. So when people were left without government support, homelessness, poverty, addiction, ill health, all went up and charities were forced to step in. And there's probably still some deranged libertarian in Tufton Street or even on the government benches waiting for charities to fail so at last they can be proved right and all these desperate and ill people will be forced into the fields to pick all of that fruit that's currently rotting after Brexit. Um, And I think that the one that's always kind of got me is Macmillan Nurses, who do the most incredible end-of-life care for people. Um, they are extraordinary, and they've, they've helped family members of mine in their most dire hour of need. And that that isn't something that the state provides uh, in the same way in, in people's homes, allowing them some shred of dignity and closeness to their family is, you know, heartbreaking. But um, they don't, and there's <laughs> no signs of, of this government doing anything to... Uh, support these charities or or provide any of these these services. Seth, historically, philanthropy has been much more common in the US than here. And this is clearly part of the conservative vision in some way. Are we becoming more like that? Are we even the kind of society that could step up in that way? 
Well, it depends on the value judgment that you make. I mean, some people would say philanthropy and others might say tax avoidance. Um, you know, it is an alternative. Bear in mind that the culture in the US very much is of massive tax breaks for charitable giving. And we've had a very dramatic example of that in last week with the publication of Donald Trump's tax returns, not least because uh, he, he's paraded his charitable giving in the past and we've realized how little there has actually been or where there has been charitable giving it's have been of rather dubious value such as um uh, loans which seem to benefit his children which seem to be counted as being charitable giving and so on we have a culture i think in the uk of um you know well-established charitable and non-charitable trusts and there's been as much accounting interest in the non-charitable side, actually, as there has been um, in the more sort of general philanthropy. And philanthropy is wonderful and very nice, and it's jolly good that um, you you have people like Bill Gates going around saying, yes, I'd encourage my fellow billionaires to give away most of their fortune. But um, that's – I mean, the number of billionaires that we have in the world today, even accounting for inflation, in real terms, wealth – um, the transfer of wealth into so few hands is something that um, even the most doctrinaire Marxist or indeed Marx himself didn't quite necessarily picture a couple of hundred years ago when the sort of caricature of capitalism was being summoned up in the late 19th century. Um, and as a result, we as a society are still sort of learning what that means. You know, I, I was watching um, a great fun film, actually. Uh, this is not an endorsement necessary, but uh, I was enjoying Glass Onion for the simple fact that it is a satire of Elon Musk and of the mega wealthy in the world today. The degree of respectability which is conferred upon people around philanthropy, um, this is, you know, what I'm getting at when I have my little snide asides about the honours system as well. It's how people seek general acceptance and that's fine and that's good and sometimes it does fantastic things. But this is a system which, for example, thought nothing of uh, lauding Russian oligarchs for a decade in London and London grad until suddenly we decided, oh, maybe we don't like their money after all. Um, we need to take a long, hard look at what kind of a world we live in and what money is actually raised through what means and for what purposes. And a lot of this philanthropy stuff is just fluff on that. We're at the end of the podcast, so it's time for Under the Radar. Which are the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve this week? Seth, what have you got in mind? Well, this is amazingly frivolous. Um, the trees have gone from inside uh, Westminster's Portcullis House, the, uh, the large office block. Yeah, so um, basically the, the government's been ripped off over several decades. I mean, they, they've already spent over half a million pounds on those trees. Um, there are 12 of when them inside the court. Um, a few weeks ago. Um, okay. they, they've, yep, they've just taken them down. So the, the, there were 12. Three had already gone because they were leaning over dangerously. And they, they were, so when, when they built this thing 20-odd uh, years ago, they didn't think that if you put a tree in a corridor, it might grow. Mm. <laughs> and Nobody roots, could have foreseen that. <laughs> its roots wouldn't go very deep and it would topple over as it gets taller and taller and taller and becomes a massive health and safety risk. Um, and they already had the, the original trees were being rented from a company in Florida for £32,000 wow. a year. Of course they were. <laughs> and eventually they brought it in-house at only eighteen grand a year, but now gradually they've been able to um, get you know inflationary costs, etc. And uh, they're, they're trying to work out what to do next. I mean, whether they should have a hedge or, you know, just something else. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of an allegory here, isn't there? <laughs> Arthur, what's your under-the-radar? Um, well, I, I, before I get to that, I'm just wishing I was in the tree rental business. But anyway, um, so more fool me. I want to talk about Israel for a moment. So on, on the 29th of December, when we were all still sort of eating the turkey curry leftovers, Benjamin Netanyahu returned as Prime Minister of Israel, which is often a, a sign of bad things happening. Perhaps more significantly, he appointed as his national security minister an ultra hardliner, a guy called Itamar Ben Gavir, who comes from a, a party that, even by previous Netanyahu government standards, 
is really on the fringe. And uh, almost uh, predictably, as a result, Ben Gavir went to a visit of uh, the the Temple Mount, uh, which is also the site of the Haram al-Sharif in Jerusalem, which is a, a highly sensitive site. And people uh, with longer memories may recall when Ariel Sharon did that visit in the year 2000, that sparked off a huge intifada. Now, I... It, this hasn't had that much attention, but one of the things I think is is interesting about it is the fact that it there won't be an intifada as a result of this, and that's because actually the Israeli state has succeeded in repressing the Palestinians to the point that they don't have the ability to rise up like that. Now that might be a good thing in in general terms, you know, there will be less violence as a result, but it's also a sign of the times that a very extreme uh, figure within Israeli politics is appointed national security minister. Will you be doing a Doomsday Watch episode on this? Sounds like we ought to. Naomi, what have we been overlooking? Okay, so this isn't exactly under the radar because it was on the front page of the Sunday Times, but I felt it was worth mentioning for those who uh, on New Year's Day didn't uh, log into their Times account or pop out to get a paper. Um, That was um, Best of Britain's polling um, of the Don't Knows um, we had uh, four pages um, across uh, pages one, two, three, four of the Sunday Times uh, dedicated to our deep dive analysis, which should give uh, Labour pause for thought and make sure that they are being extra vigilant about winning the next election. Because in some constituencies, and as listeners will know, at Best Rep, we do this seat level polling, in some seats, the don't knows are polling as high as 30%, um, several of them in the high 20s and on average 13% across the country. And you guessed it, a lot of these are shy conservatives. Uh, when we drill down into uh, the data and we interrogate those people that give that response a little bit more, asking them various other questions, you basically are able to um, infer that they will vote Conservative at the next election, or a very large chunk of them will. 88% of them say they will definitely vote. So that gives you an indication of how inclined they are to vote, and that effectively they're, they're just too embarrassed to admit that they would vote Conservative at this time. So, um, yeah, that will not necessarily, as things stand, mean that you don't have a Labour majority, but we're still two years potentially away from an election, um, and a lot could happen. So if the polls narrow further um, and uh, in increasing numbers of those people turn out for the Conservatives on polling day itself, then you might find uh, that we're back into hung parliament territory. No room for complacency. None at all. What was yours? Anything you spotted? I did spot that uh, Extinction Rebellion has decided to abandon its normal strategy of disruptive protests. And they put out a statement on New Year's Eve saying that they were going to do demos instead. Um, Of course, the reason for this is almost certainly the public order bill, which has basically succeeded in its aim before it's even got through uh, Parliament completely. It's to make it so difficult to protest and so punitive if you are found to have been protesting in a way that the government doesn't like that it will it is a massive deterrent to any kind of protest and it is it is sad that we have reached that stage in britain where protest is so difficult though there will be of course a lot of people on the right celebrating that fact Uh, There's going to be a very big demo in April, apparently, which they plan to organise, and they hope that simply a strength of numbers and turnout will will make a difference. But in many ways, this is dismaying for me. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Seth. Thank you very much. Naomi. Thank you. And Arthur. Thank you for having me. Now stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. After Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. And thank you to Jane Elloway, Nuisance Factor, Tom Robson, Mickey, Christopher Enright, George Carruthers, Mary Gilbert, Alan Tucker, 
Chido Edgy Mofo and Robert Hargrave. Happy New Year and a hello from me to Scotty Parker, Peter Smith, John McKay, Michael Enover, William O'Malley, Dan Sanderson, Mark McTie, Katie Hammonds, Laura Chambers and Alex Gresham-Scott. Many thanks and a happy 2023 to Nick Young, Nella Logan, Caroline Townsend, Andy Ray, Scrappy, I hope that's a little dog in the cartoon, <laughs> L. Boyton, Meg Humphreys, Simon Field, David Turner and Ian Jones. And finally, all the best for the new year from me to Stephen Kinsella, Pesky, Kimberly Salmasian, Mariano Doherty, Colm Corcoran, Nicholas Day, David Simmons, Michael Vaughan, Jay Crawford and Graham Carrington. We'll see you next time. Oh God, what now? New Year, same exasperation. Was presented by Ros Taylor with Arthur Snell, Naomi Smith and Seth Tavos. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. We're guessing you've already read How Britain Broke the World, Behind Closed Doors, How to Be a Liberal, The Ministry of Truth, and Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse preferably twice, but there are still plenty of books out there to recommend that aren't written by one of our panellists. What are the big books, either in size or stature, that we've never read? Seth, which large, impressive book have you not got round to reading yet? There's a book which should be more of a household name than it is, called A World Restored, uh, Mechanic, Castle Ra and the Problems of Peace. And it was based on the PhD thesis of Henry Kissinger. And he was best known, really, broke onto the public sphere for his second book called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. But the arguments of nuclear weapons and foreign policy are utterly identical to what he sets out in this first book, which is all about diplomacy in the 1810s and 1820s. And it's about realpolitik. It's about de-escalation. It's about leveraging in international relations. It's about how you conduct non-escalatory foreign policy, which, given everything in the world, seems to me more timely than ever. Excellent. Naomi, how about you? I'm genuinely embarrassed to admit this, but I've never read... That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week, without ads and a day early, then give yourself a New Year present and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.